0: On this episode of Cinema Smorgasbord Presents, Bar Tell Me Something Good, we're reminding you that there's no war but the class war by taking a look at the 1989 satirical black comedy, Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. Welcome back to another edition of Bartell Me Something Good, a podcast about the life and work of actor and filmmaker Paul Bartell. I'm your host, Adriana Gober, and I'm joined once again, as always, by Liam O'Donnell and Doug Tilley. How are you guys, Liam? Let's start with you.
1: Oh, man. I mean, (laughs) everything is great, except for that I'm on quarantine for my second round of COVID in a week. I had the Pax the Paxlovid rebound. So I'm back in quarantine again.
0: Other than that, life is You great. and COVID, best friends for life.
1: I mean, yo, I'm someone who's been trying to avoid it. So just even getting it again was not was a bummer. But getting the rebound again where you're healthy for a week and then you get sick, like again, it's just like it's just frustrating, especially because this time I shouldn't complain about this. It's good that I'm not that sick, but I am quarantined and I want to leave the house so bad, but I'm unwilling to risk the safety of others just because I'm feeling very stir crazy at the moment.
2: Liam, I know that you attended all those rallies, but I really think you should get vaccinated. At
1: this point. <laughs> I mean, at this point, I'm so glad that I got vaccinated because my assumption is that if I felt not so great you know, with it, oh, god damn, what would I be like if I hadn't gotten it? I'd probably be really fucked up. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you probably have your original DNA instead of this mutant DNA that you developed. Look, I've taken the other side of what I was saying yeah. before now. <laughs> well, it's fine, Doug, when the rest of us get our special Liam, you're powers. you're infected
0: with 5G now, 5G. Yeah. Like.
1: And when my powers come to me from the Illuminati, led by the lizard Hillary Clinton, you're just going to be jealous, aren't you, Doug?
2: Yeah, I am. I mean, I, yeah. I admit it. Take I mean, that, it David pro- Icke. It'll probably be three years before it arrives in Canada anyway. So. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm doing great. I'm, uh, I'm happy that we're here talking about... Uh, sadly, the second last uh, directorial feature of Paul Bartel.
0: Yeah, we're we're kind of kind of winding down here in terms of films uh, written and directed by Bartel. But we still have plenty of Bartel uh, acting parts to feature. Sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of kind of bittersweet.
1: And we're about to get into it, so you know, I don't want to get into it too hard. But I, but I. I did feel like watching this movie that this should have been the follow-up to eating Raoul. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, just watching it, I was thinking, <laughs> this is the next movie. It's like, this is what should have come out next. And that's, you know, it's great that this movie exists. I'm really happy I watched it. I'm stoked to talk about it. It's sad to think, oh, this isn't, like, his career getting going. This is the sunset, you know? Like, this is the... <laughs> The the, right. the the glorious last sort of thing. And again, that's not to denigrate his acting. I can't wait to watch him in a, a bunch of roles, some of which I've seen that I think are amazing. But like this movie is, well, we're going to get into it, but it really should have been the beginning of a very illustrious career. And that's, you know, one of the highlights of the end.
2: It also felt like Bruce Wagner was this, was like the perfect pairing with him in terms of a writer. And I right. would have loved to see what else they could do together. Agreed.
0: Oh, yeah. Me too. Although I guess I'll take this opportunity to uh, promote a film by one of my other favorite filmmakers, David Cronenberg. Um, his his 2015, I think it was 2014 movie, uh, Maps of the Stars, which was written by Bruce Wagner. And I mm-hmm. think Maps of the Stars shares a lot of DNA with scenes from The Class Struggle in Beverly Hills. And I think it's also a very underrated satire that was kind of unfairly maligned at the time partially because people were still mad that Cronenberg was making a Hollywood satire and not like weird shit that he used to make so um yeah
1: uh don't get me started on that because my man was getting <laughs> harassed for not doing the Cronenberg thing for so long and then he finally goes back to the well and everyone goes oh don't, uh, yeah it's just the same old Cronenberg motherfuckers you've been harassing this man for a decade and then he finally gives you the sweet stuff, and you're going to complain? Get out of here.
0: And also, let's just be clear that Crimes of the Future fucking rule. So. It's so
2: goddamn good.
1: I hate everyone. I, it makes me want to like, break people that they didn't like it. I love
2: Crimes of the Future, but unfortunately, I don't like Maps of the Stars.
0: I mean, okay, fine. but
1: I'll be honest. I haven't seen it, but it is, in fact... One of only three Cronenberg movies I haven't seen, which is really weird because I didn't do that on purpose. It just
2: happened that, I'm like, oh yeah,
1: I've seen almost all of his movies. La- That's crazy. Liam, you
2: don't gotta twist my arm, buddy. David Cronenberg podcast coming up. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Let's do it. <laughs> I'll
0: be mad. I'll be mad if I'm not involved in that. Also, but I will. I will listen with avid interest regardless. Well, I think we've yapped enough for our intro. Uh, let's get into it. Uh, scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills scenes from the class struggle in beverly hills released in 1989 directed of course by paul bartell with a screenplay by bruce wagner from a story by bartell and wagner edited by alan Tumayan, uh, with cinematography by steven uh Fafierberg, uh who I was looking at his IMDB, he does a lot of TV, primarily, but he did shoot the movie Secretary, which I absolutely love, so mm-hmm. I just had to mention that bit of trivia. Uh, uh, the film is scored by Stanley Myers, who has also uh, done a lot of, of, of film scoring work. Uh, he did several movies uh, with Nicholas Rogue and Stephen Frears, including My Beautiful Laundrette, which is a great movie. Um, produced by North Street Pictures and distributed by Cinecom. Starring Jacqueline Bissett, Mary Warnoff, Robert Beltran, uh, Ray Sharkey, Ed Begley Jr., Wallace Shawn. I mean, there's really... This is a stacked cast. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have Bartell himself making an appearance uh, as a a very amusing character that we will get into. Um, We've got Paul Mazursky, uh, Rebecca Schaefer, who sadly was murdered not long after the release of this film um barrett oliver from the never-ending story uh yeah there's there's a lot uh you even have a there's a little bit of a there's a cameo from bruce wagner the uh the writer of the film as well in the opening sequence i don't know if you guys noticed that
2: who did he, who was he in the opening
0: he is, there's a scene, you know when they're sitting around the dinner table, they're having that dinner party?
2: Sure, of course. Um,
0: he is uh, sitting, if I recall correctly, he's sitting next to Paul Bartel. So I think to to start things off here, I mean, there is a lot going on in this movie. You know, the, the overarching plot of this movie concerns this weekend gathering between the two wealthy families and their circles of friends, um, and sort of the chaos that ensues when they all get together. And out of the situation, several plot threads emerge, you know, and there there's basically three main groups of characters who yeah. serve as the anchor point for various other characters and plot con- character and plot conflicts. Um, so you have uh, these characters, Claire and Lisbeth, who are played by, Jacqueline Bissett and Mary Warnoff. They are, uh, you know, wealthy, middle-aged um, Beverly Hills socialites. Claire is a widow and former sitcom star. And Wisbeth, can we assume she's recently divorced? I guess we never really get a sense of how long ago her marriage dissolved. Uh, but anyway, she, she is divorced and she has a teenage son uh, named Willie who had cancer but is now in remission. And... Uh, Claire invites Lisbeth and her son to stay at her house for the weekend while Lisbeth's house is being fumigated. And so that's kind of, that's like one kind of character configuration happening. And then you have Lisbeth's brother, Peter, played by Ed Begley Jr., who is a playwright. And he comes to stay for the weekend as well. And he brings his new wife, Tobel, who is a fling that he basically only met a few days prior to the events of the film. Uh, And there's a lot more to Tobel then it initially appears. So, and we'll get into that too. And then uh, I guess like the the final, like the third storyline we should probably establish up top is uh, the subplot between Robert Beltran and Ray Sharkey's characters, Juan and Frank. They're the hired help for Claire and Elizabeth. And you know, Frank is this sort of like uninhibited bisexual man who is very open about uh, his various affairs with Beverly Hill elites of all genders. He's an artist, he rides a motorcycle, uh, you know, in this Stephen Armstrong, Bartel biography that we have, you know, referenced throughout uh, the show. He has a little bit about Bruce Wagner, the writer of the film, and how he was sort of very influenced by Jean Genet. And I think that comes out in the character of Frank. Uh, He he has, like, very Jeanne vibes. And then you have uh, Juan, who is... Like, he's more of a traditional guy, kind of performatively macho. And, you know, he owes some shady guys a bunch of money. And so he and Frank make this bet that, you know, by the end of the weekend, they they each have to uh, seduce the other one's boss. Uh, And if they're both successful or they're both unsuccessful, they can call it a draw. If Juan wins this bet, Frank has to pay up like five grand that that Juan needs to pay off his debt. And if Frank wins, Juan has to sleep with him. And so these are kind of like the core character groupings and like subplots of the film.
2: There's so many, it feels like there's still like tons of stuff we haven't even touched on in regards to the relationship. It is crazy.
1: Uh, Adriana, you uh, opened talking about uh, Bruce Wagner was in that uh, beginning scene, the dinner scene. That dinner scene really established for me what this movie was gonna feel like right because um, it is a it is a, a plot in which um, they fake a horrible burning of one of the servants to then wish Juan a happy birthday and the tone of that I, I just I remember I was watching it and once all of that happened I thought, how did people not know that this movie was ridiculous? You know what I mean? Like It it just feels to me like it's a perfect way to set the tone and to immediately establish what's at stake here, which is the differences between these people who have to share their lives together and how that's a source of both humor and um, what I would call humorous horror. That there are certain moments of this movie that are so over the top and ridiculous that they are both funny and upsetting right hence you know a black comedy and uh I just in my brain, it's like the perfect way to like welcome the audience into this space to be like, "Oh, you thought she was burned in the face? She's fine. This is all a fun prank. All right, here we go." And I'm like, "Okay,
2: this is this is gonna be crazy." I I kind of see where it's we're It's kind at. of an essential thing to mention that that was a dream sequence <laughs> at the beginning, though, right? Sure, but it just feels like
1: okay, I know what we're where, where the we're the funny thing at. is,
2: you're exactly right, right? Because it's it is a dream sequence, but it's pitched just like one notch above what the whole rest of the movie is. Right, yeah, I mean, it, it, it doesn't seem like by the time insane. you get exactly by the time you get to the end, it kind of feels like well, maybe that is something that they would do outside of maybe the direct murder of some of the characters uh, in in the right. context of it. But yeah, no, it's it's really it really puts you in that mindset right at the beginning. It it really throws you off kilter, and that's why I think both Liam and myself when we watched it, we were like. What is this? What is this all about? Like, what what is the tone of this? It's not quite eating Raoul. It's something a little different. But once you lock into it, man, I thought it was so much fun.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense because I it's very jarring at first because the tone is so incredibly heightened right out of the gate. It can be kind of disorienting at like, I mean, it was for me the first time I watched the movie. Um, but I think it's actually really smart because then, when you realize it was all just a dream that that Robert Beltran's character is having, then it kind of like it primes you for the 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 tone that the movie eventually settles into, which is not quite that crazy over the top, but it, it is very heightened. So doesn't it
2: feel like that the dream at the beginning is something that could have come directly out of Eating Raoul, right? Because I mean, they that movie treats murder. Oh so yeah, kind totally. Of- kind of uh, of uh, in a relaxed manner uh, so it's funny that it feels like it's almost like a bridge between the tone of eating raul and this movie and we right. it's hard not to th- watch this movie and not think of eating raul it feels like the natural continuation of what he was trying to do there to some extent
0: yeah it really does and it it just serves to f- like further highlight like how out of step the previous uh couple of movies feel like with like, what Paul Bartell re- is really good at and what he does best. And again, like, to your point at the top of the episode, like, it, it also just is bittersweet, too, because, again, he didn't get to make too many movies after this, and it really feels like he's finally hitting his stride and building upon, you know, the stu- stuff like Private Parts and Eating Raul, you know, the, the really kind of... Um, mm, like, smart and scathing social satire. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, like, this is this is Bartel in God mode again. Right. And, and it, it feels good to be back here. After after a few episodes of, like, quite frankly, uh, pretty like drudgery.
1: I think I... Uh, the other thing about that opening sequence that I think matters, and I don't want to say this in a way that insults people who don't like this movie, however, part of the tone is you're realization that a lot of these characters are mocking a certain like way of being that people aspire to. Right. And that first sequence, we really see them as like kind of ridiculous monsters. And then throughout the movie, you know, they have moments of, 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 you know, uh, uh, humanity to them, but mostly we're making fun of these, these folks, right. That mostly they're ridiculous in a lot of different ways. And I'm sure there are people who have other reasons, but when I was reading through, I'm like, what is the vibe on this movie on Letterboxd? I'm not convinced everyone is actually just ready for a movie that makes fun of these people, or maybe they just don't get the jokes about who they are. It might be a time thing, but there's a bit of a tone here that's like, you're on board, audience, right, that all of this is ridiculous. Like, the subtle jokes from the Paul Bertel character, the Dr.,
0: um, Mo, Mo
1: Vandecamp, Vandecamp. I mean, even just the idea that um, the thinologist runs. I was going to say he runs a clinic, right? to make people thin, which by the way, sometimes people die at, that's just a fact, you know? And you're just supposed to understand that that's fucking funny, and then when he transitions to he's going to Africa to fight hunger, the thinologist is going to Africa to fight hunger. That's also darkly funny, and I just don't know that everyone who has had a chance to see this movie hears those sorts of details and thinks, (laughs) holy shit, they might just, it just watches over them, maybe, or or that's the vibe I get, you know? And again, I'm not trying to say that, oh, because they're, you know, not smart or anything like that, but sometimes you have to be primed to see something portrayed and go... Uh, yeah, like, it, it clicks for you that you also think this is fucking ridiculous uh, and understand the context in which it's
0: Yeah, in. so uh, two things. One, since you brought up the fact that Bartell has a lot of really good lines in this movie, I just have to quote my favorite, which is...
1: Look, I don't care who you talk to. When you get a bunch of rich, fat people who are determined to get thin at any price, some of them are going to die. It's just a rule of thumb.
0: Paul Bartell delivers that line to perfection. Uh but yeah, it's, I, he has, he has so many great lines. He,
1: he specifically says rule of thumb like that proves that it's like he, there's an emotional, it's a rule of thumb. Like you go, oh, it's a rule of thumb. Okay, my bad. Like that's supposed to make the right. case for you about these dead people.
0: Um, and then the other thing I wanted to bring up is um, to your point, Liam, about how some people might have just not be ready to accept the, these types of people being made fun of in the movie. So there's a, there's a. Uh, in um, the Paul Bartel, The Life and Films book by Stephen B. Armstrong, there is a quote, quotation from Wallace John where he's talking about how he really wanted to do this movie. And uh, he actually kind of touches on this in this quotation. He says, it's astonishing to me that this movie could have been made in the 80s. Everyone I know leaps at any sign that the social pendulum might be swinging in a less, well, fascistic direction though I'm not sure that it is. For me, this is a period where most Americans believe that social satire, satire that I would consider empty or silly or incredibly superficial, is really bitingly savage. I don't know, I guess most Americans simply don't have that degree of anger in their repertoire, and I feel like I should provide a bit of context here and say that he is comparing Bartell and Wagner's satire He favorably to the type of satire that you saw more commonly, I guess, at the time. I'm not I'm not exactly sure what he is referring to here, like the kinds I, of movies he might be thinking of. I mean, I do think,
2: uh, so, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, I think that a lot of people going into this movie and having kind of a base idea of what it's about are going to think that the satire is going to be very straight ahead, which is rich people... You're gonna mock them, right? And you can make them look silly or whatever. And that the the, uh, the for lack of a better term, servants, their their hired help are gonna be portrayed as heroic exclusively, right? But this movie plays with those lines and interweaves, mm-hmm. and like Liam says, shows the humanity in all of them while making them look like the most out of touch, bizarre people on the planet. But it still comes down to that 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 idea of the, those power and class distinctions that. That Wallace Shawn was talking about in a much more a nuanced way than I think that maybe audiences would have been used to in the late eighties.
0: Yeah, and also that blurring of class lines is also a little bit like threatening in a way because mm-hmm. it's you know it's breaking down those divides. It's it's
2: it's sort of an emotional distinction too, right? I and mean, that's the thing that really is kind of memorable. I mean, there's lots that's memorable about this movie, but it really seems to. Put a lot of stock in these people having emotions that they've covered up or are hiding behind a veneer of whether it be masculinity or appropriateness, right? They're all very sexually deprived or sexually in overdrive all at the same time. But when it comes to them actually, you know, developing feelings for one another, it's tre- treated somewhat sweetly. The way that Robert Beltran's character the way that he actually seems to fall for Mary Waranov and does so to the point where he doesn't want to even win this contest that he has with Ray Sharkey or isn't doesn't want to admit that he's won the contest. It It's actually a little confusing in the context of the movie because it seems like his life might be in danger if he doesn't just say that he won the contest, but it's kind of sweet from his perspective, right? He's just like, it means too much for him or something like that to to debase it by being part of this contest.
0: Yeah it's a a sort of code of honor
2: i mean that contest is is something by the way like that is i don't think i would have i saw this movie at some point in the early 90s i don't remember i don't remember anything about it but if there's anything that i'm going to kind of lingeringly remember it's the idea of this competition where the loser is going to be i mean fucked by the winner
1: i uh one of the things that's so ridiculous to me about the contest though is that um how does Frank expect to win when he's busy fucking every other character he can? Like, every time you think... And not that he doesn't hit on um, uh, Jacqueline Bessette's character at all. He does, but it's like when he's not hitting on her, he's with somebody else. And I was continually surprised at him with other characters and thinking that was hilarious. Um, Side note, I also like that the kid from... Uh, Neverending Story showed up in this and was like kind of funny to me because I hate him in that yeah. movie. Like, he's the reason that movie is not rewatchable is because of that kid. And so to see him here as this like weird rich kid who had is that a mohawk? Yeah, or, it's a uh, mohawk, mohawk,
0: mohawk, which you, at, by the end of the movie, like you finally see that he like gelled it.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, yeah, it, it yeah, is yeah.
0: flaccid for most of the film. <laughs>
1: It's just he's got this weird, flaccid mohawk. He's it's like, also symbolic you know, of
2: his own sexual maturity, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> exactly, 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 exactly.
1: I, every part about it was like fun in a way that I was not expecting from this kid. And it made me really happy that, like, I mean, I don't know you know, what, this, what his career was like at this point. But the fact that he was like, yeah, I want to be in this movie, in this role, well, it's great. I,
0: it's, great. It, it's worth pointing out that he was in Frankenweenie with Paul Bartell. The, the Frankenweenie, the Tim Burton short.
1: I did not know that. I've only seen the, the uh, feature.
2: I've never seen the short. Oh, the short. You got to see the short. It's good. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, really, it's good. really good. He also was Daryl, I think, in that movie Daryl.
0: Oh, my <laughs> God. Yes, he was.
2: <laughs> when I was a kid, I saw that movie a thousand times.
0: <laughs> I saw that movie for the first time when I was doing, like, <laughs> captioning for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I... Bought that movie for video research, but I've never seen it.
0: I liked it. It feels very of its time, though. Like, I, like, I don't I don't know. It just feels like, like Child Who is really, like, a weapon. It seems like a very 80s concept. I don't know. At least, like, the way it is explored in that movie, specifically.
2: There was probably a decade where every time I saw Michael McKean in something, I would say, hey, it's the guy from Daryl. That's the kind <laughs> of context I had.
0: For me it was the guy from Besson Show <laughs> Like before we move on, I just want to I, I want to add that it's probably not surprising that the the Juan and Frank stuff is like my favorite stuff in the movie
1: Sure yeah, yeah and yeah, 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 I really
0: yeah. have it's strangely wholesome I, I just really I like their friendship and I like the fact that they are still friends at the end of the movie and that Frank shows up for him to give him that money even though he didn't yeah. need to. Um,
1: well, when it's first proposed, right, we, we are getting this vibe from Juan. that's that's a little it's sort of tapping into like the 80s kind of gay panic thing like he's like, oh, no, oh, my gosh. But then when he finally has to give in, right, his attitude is like, ah, whatever, life is weird, things happen. And that's so foreign to what the attitude in the 80s was, which was that there is a chasm between straightness yeah. and uh, homosexuality bullshit. that shall never be crossed, and I'm like, yo, I've read James Baldwin books. I, come on, that's not real. You know what I mean? Like this idea that like if you are this one thing, it would never occur to you to allow something like that to happen. Never. And instead, he's like, all right, well, you know, life's weird. Let's see what's up. I just thought that was so much more healthy and interesting, yes. but also not a surprise because it's fucking Paul Par Martel. So it's what I would expect. I didn't expect him to use that moment to play up some sort of like, oh my God, what's going to happen? You should be so afraid. Well, Instead, it's literally like, hey, these two guys are pretty good friends now. You know, it's Yeah,
0: cool. I mean, it also s- sets up an interesting contrast between all of the eccentric, wealthy people who are mm-hmm. like extremely neurotic about sex in so many ways. Yes. Whereas, uh, you know, Frank and Juan, ha- they, like, they just have this very kind of like matter of fact approach to things and uh, like, like you said, just like a much, much healthier <laughs> outlook.
2: I don't think a non-queer director at this time period could have shot that scene of them leading into the sexual act, right? Where it, there's a real, it's like funny, but it's kind of tender at the same time yeah there's a
0: warmth and affection like he says i'm not gonna have fun if you're not gonna have fun
2: right and and when he says that he means it he legitimately means it and the fact that that because they're friends but obviously that frank has a sexual attraction to Juan, that there is there's an attempt there to make him comfortable we don't see much of the actual act or really anything of it but the fact that the response to it afterwards isn't Oh God, I feel so terrible. Oh God, I gotta take it. You know, I don't. I'm unclean. I'm so disgusted with myself. It's my God. We shared something, and it seems like it brought them closer together. Yeah. I mean, almost a revolutionary thing to have in a movie in 1989.
0: Yeah, it's just an experience that they shared together, and you know, no big deal.
2: It also it also doesn't make him any. You know, I mean, I don't know. I, Ray Sharkey, his character, like you he said, he's bisexual, but I mean, I don't even know if if he would have described himself in that character as that right. way he just you know he for him it's just all the same because he talks about his like first sexual experience and how there was a man involved with that but with robert Beltran, it doesn't it, he, i don't think he feels changed afterwards outside of maybe no. growing closer to a friend of his
0: and yeah i think i think you're right like that to show that was in a way like very re- revolutionary be for exactly the reasons that liam went into you know just the the attitudes of the time
2: I think by the way that this might be I mean I, actually I'm not even going to say it might be this is so much more lush and more uh confidently directed than anything we've seen yeah. from Paul Bartel up to this point. I mean he, I think we've seen a, a, an expansion of his tools as a filmmaker over these last few movies, but this is really feels like a guy who's like I know what I'm doing. I can do There there's some really kind of fun moments with all these close-ups in the characters' faces. Mm-hmm. Um but he, A lot of know, interesting
0: he, camera stuff in this movie.
2: Absolutely. And I mean it's just and and God, I mean, I mean we praise Alan Tamayan anyway, but in a movie with this many characters who are all have these wild relationships that we're trying to keep track of and man, the the editing has to be on point. And thankfully, you know, by the time you get to the end, you're like, I understand how all of these people relate to one another and why they're all angry at each other
1: this script has some over the top humor there's no way to avoid you know the the porn thing or as you said the mohawk representing his ability to deliver all that kind of stuff there's these very things but there's also the kind of little quips and comments that without both good directing and good editing you would fucking yep. miss right because as as we started and you were saying Adriana the script has layers the script has you know the equivalent of a pie to the face and then the equivalent of a subtle pun about recent events that you have to have the context for it to get and it's like if 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 you don't nail that right both performance wise as well as coverage and focus and even there's some really quality reaction shots to things that like are hard to pull off while well, all that stuff it is. It's more subtle, obviously, than maybe what people think of as, like, really uh, impressive directing. But to me, it was just really strong how well all these different kinds of humor, as well as, as as Doug has already suggested, the emotional Mm -hmm. content, which is not taken away. Because it still is a melodrama, right? It's not going to stop being a melodrama just because it's funny. So we have to have also the emotions there, too. It just nails all that. And I was blown away by how effective it is
0: can we talk about wallace sean
1: <laughs> yes he's unbelievable this yeah movie. he
0: other than the frank and juan stuff i think everything to do with wallace sean's character is my favorite thing <laughs> about this movie
2: him quoting and, from ed Bagley's uh play about his castration and stuff like that every line in that had me yep. rolling it was so funny <laughs>
1: I'm so ashamed.
0: I know what I have to do now. What do you
1: mean? I'm going to check into the Moete Chandal suite of the Wilshire with all the
0: surgical equipment I need and I'll simply remove them. Remove them? I heard about a man who took out his own appendix, so why not just hack them off at the root? Your balls?
1: <laughs> oh, my balls! I have no balls, Liz. All I have is a set of fat petty is sewn up in cheap leather. Howard, I am really worried about you. A couple of greedy monsters dangling in a smarmy woman's purse. The kind you buy at Q-Mart. Monogamy was my kingdom, and they have exiled me. Oh, poor baby. The, the, the response when he's like, I never touched her. I mean, we had sex, but, you know, other, it's so good. Oh, man. Even him, the 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 histrionics of him being like, I
0: don't deserve to be in this house. Oh, yeah. And him
1: going off. I'm just like, fuck, this is good. That so entire weird. scene, I, the
0: breakfast scene, where there, where they yes. where all of the dirty laundry starts being aired, is so good.
1: With the reporter there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, in that way, I also want to mention Ed Begley Jr., mm-hmm. because I think that his ability, I really believe that he is both deeply pained by his new wife's infidelity and trying to leave her for uh, uh, Jacqueline Bisset at the same time. And he feels both those things, as well as he's convinced his play is like true art. Also, he would like to wa- write for TV if he could. <laughs> so both of those things are true. And and he really just brings a certain kind of ridiculousness that I just – I fucking love
2: him for. He just – he makes the, me very the happy. The part where Tobel kicks him over the couch and then he comes back yes. over and he grabs the, what the the picture off the frame and smashes it <laughs> over her head. Like that's not cool, obviously, but it's so slapstick, right? I mean it's just like – and then he just breaks out crying and apologizing to her. I mean it, like this is a movie that feels like, – uh, Uh, up to 10 isn't enough, right? It's pushing higher at all times. It's getting more histrionic. So the fact that it can nail any of those emotional beats is super impressive, right? I mean, it really, it ends, I think, on a really high note as well. I mean, I really, this is a movie, I think, that I loved more as it was going on, and I think I loved it the most in, like, the final act.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. Like, the, the movie just gets better and better as it goes.
2: I will say... Since, uh, because I think we're being, a uh, we're uh, not we, me specifically have been nothing but positive about it. I I don't think Jacqueline bissett gives a bad performance. But I will say that Claire Lipkin is the least interesting character in this movie by leaps and bounds. And so the fact that she's at the center of it, it's, uh, sometimes when it goes back to her, you know, all these different men hitting on her. I mean, that makes sense in the context of the movie. But I just like, I just wish that we were spending that time with Mary Warnoff's character instead. Well,
0: two things. First, in... Um, the Paul Bartel book by Stephen Armstrong. There's some like one of the um, like background details that he gets into in the book is that there were actually like a bunch more scenes between um, Mary Vornoff and Robert Beltran that got cut that really um, developed their relationship more and and showed kind of it like it just further developed the things that you picked up on earlier, but you know about how that there is this real emotional connection between them, and like you can kind of pick up on that uh, in the version of the movie that was released, but apparently that was a lot more developed in an earlier edit that um, I guess the, I think it was Cinecom, the distributor, they had all kinds of issues with the movie, including the length, so they wound up cutting a lot of that stuff. And then he, he locked heads with him on, on a bunch of other stuff too that he just said, I'm, I'm not changing anything else.
2: To a certain extent, the movie really would have benefited from a little more fleshing out of that relationship because you get the impression sometimes that Mary Warnoff might be just, her character might be just using Robert Balchon, right? It's hard to get a sense from her side that her emotions are necessarily growing in the way that you are sure that his are, Uh, and maybe a couple of more scenes or maybe even one more scene which establish that a little bit more directly would have been nice for the movie yeah. to, to have included. But I was just gonna say, how weird is it to start this movie and the rank organization getting the that, that classic logo that you see from all those yeah. classic <laughs> movies of the guy hitting the big gong? I mean, I just thought, I was like, this is a Paul Bartel movie? <laughs> really sets it off on an interesting note.
0: Um, I remembered the other thing I wanted to say, which was about the Jacqueline Bissett character. I totally agree, and it's pretty wild that that is the case, considering the fact that her character is also regularly communicating with the ghost of her dead husband. (laughs) The fact that her character still manages to be, like, the least interesting person in the movie, I I mean, that, that really speaks to just how kind of larger than life all these other characters are, and yet also, like, really not that far removed from how eccentric, like, wealthy people can actually be.
2: I like how this movie starts with a dream sequence, right? And then it ends with a talking dog, <laughs> a dog talking to a ghost.
0: Oh at yeah, that. <laughs> and then he he like slowly fades away, he dissipates <laughs> I, into the air.
1: I like Paul I like Paul Bezersky in that role of Sidney Lipkin, the ghost, right? And I even like the idea that even as a ghost, he's this annoying, horny man <laughs> who won't leave her alone. <laughs> And yet, I think maybe because I also did not find Claire extremely engaging as a character, those were not my favorite bits in the movie until the talking dog. And I think the talking dog kind of made those bits worth it just because I was not expecting it and it made me happy. But, but a lot of that time, I'm like, I, I mean, don't be me wrong, the, the idea that she's at the center and... Multiple people are hitting on her, including briefly Wallace Shawn, but he's like, she seems upset. I might as well go hit on her. Like, I think that that's all great. But again, I don't know if it's how she's written, if it's her performance, or if it's just that, for whatever reason, that part of the script just doesn't work for me. Uh, But it's as an idea, I like it. In the movie, I just wish we were spending time with Tobel or yeah. with, yeah, you know, as you said, uh, uh, Lisbeth or the, all these other characters are so much more engaging for me, and it just always felt like, okay, at breakfast is great, and especially that she has that. <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, and I got pretty stoked when they started watching the porno instead of the TV show. Like, that was pretty cool. But otherwise, I'm kind of like, meh on a lot of the plot lines around her. Uh, and and really, again, I was so surprised that I was more interested in Willie and what was going on with him than I was in Claire.
2: I think it's so strange that like this cycle of the men in this movie who are all like... D- you know, professing their love. Simpering uh, men. Like, they're professing their love to people. They're like, I love you more than anything. Then inevitably cheat on them. Then they have to have this moment of where they hate themselves and then try to win the person back. And that cycle would still continue in death. Like, that's what these men, they're just such pathetic creatures.
0: And it's just, it's depicted almost like a compulsion. (laughs) Like, that they can't control.
1: 100%. (laughs) And I get that, in a sense, we get because i guess they're the most um sympathetic in my mind other than Willie, Uh Jacqueline and um or Jacqueline, i said it like that was her <laughs> name. Claire and Elizabeth, they both get kind of happy endings, which includes juan, of course, you know. Um, and you could argue that maybe running off with Wall, Sean's character is going to be good for Tobell. I don't know. I don't I don't have <laughs> a joke. On well,
0: they were already so one of the things that we we come to find out in this movie is that um Howard Wallace Shawn's character and Tobel slept together before, and uh, and now she's married.
1: Not even just slept together, right? They were having a wild affair away until he left her. I think at the hotel, maybe. It's, she just kept saying, "No one leaves me waiting," and I'm like, "Does that suggest she was waiting at the altar, or she was just waiting in their hotel room?" I I just couldn't tell, but she definitely felt abandoned by him, and then magically is back at his. And
2: house. he's also has been impotent, right? Since since breaking up since with, the... yeah. So, I mean, maybe they never really consummated, yeah. just to make it, just in case it isn't uh, immediately clear because these relationships are so complex. Ed Bagley Jr.'s character, who is the brother of uh, Mary Warrenow's character, he has recently gotten married to a black woman named Tobel, has brought her to the house. Tobel had a previous relationship with Wallace Shawn's character, and also was previously a porno actress. Maybe that has some connection to one another. And yeah, it ends up with them back together again.
0: And uh, I I do want to say that like I think it's important that you pointed out that Tobel is black because um like race like the intersection of race and class is also something that is addressed in this movie a few a few times by how. Um, all of the, like, wealthy white characters are reacting to somebody like Tobel being in their space. Um, so there's a lot of, like, casual racist condescension going on.
2: Particularly her first appearance when she, when Mary Warnoff doesn't even uh, think that she could be Ed Bagley Jr.'s wife because she's right. black. Well, and I like that because I
1: think in 89, that level of uh, casual, like, not vitriolic but definitely racism was like kind of generally accepted as like not that big a deal like like i'm sure if if the wrong people are watching this movie they're like oh yeah that's how i would be that's a surprise you know what i mean because at the time those sorts of um again based in racist assumptions but you know no one ever like hurls a slur at her, which in 89, that's pretty good, right? Like, we're kind of like, oh, no one said anything deeply offensive. I guess they're not as, uh, as vitriolic as I would have assumed. Uh, they can't all be Reagan voters, I guess. But uh, watching it now, it's like, oh, man, he really pauses on all those moments to let you know this fucking sucks, yeah. actually. This is a, like, it's, it, it is to me, again, one of the places where the filmmaking excels. Because not a single one of those moments is played in a way that if you are a intelligent film watcher, you're just kind of like shrugging it off. They're all played for the cringiest possible moment where you have to notice like, fuck, I can't believe they said that. And yet n- I know full well, you know, as a 10 year old in 1989, I heard shit like that constantly. And not just like from random kids, like teachers yeah. said things like this, like this was a normal fucking
2: thing. We know? are a world away from Senor Wapperino at this point. Uh, in regards to <laughs> yes, how race yes. is being treated, I mean, I do think that that character sometimes it feels obvious that it's been written by a white man, uh, and and maybe it plays into a few stereotypes itself. But sure, I mean, that yeah. is a level of nuance that maybe you weren't expecting in nineteen eighty nine. The very fact that it's it's it is a movie that is commenting openly on her race and the race obviously of Juan as well, and really just the fact that and, and uh, Rosa as well. You know, the idea that it's. It's never kind of, the movie doesn't stop to tell you what it's saying, but you can see it in the background and in the way that characters interact throughout the whole movie.
1: When Rosa first went on one of her rants, my fucking radar went up like, oh no, I don't know that I'm into this. But then when it came so clear that she was worshiping the God of death and she just kept bringing up the various sacrifices he needed, I thought, this is a joke I'm 100% in for. I'm not offended at all. This is sick. I hope it goes the whole time. And it does. Every time she says something, it's goddamn gold. And and there's some part of me that still worries like, I guess that could be seen a certain way, and maybe, 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 but it's so fucking good, guys, that I don't care. It's so good. It's, it's one of the best parts of the movie, and we had not got there yet. It's just the fucking shit that Rosa says. It's, it's that amazing. even
2: she gets to have sex with someone is pretty amazing. <laughs> well. Yes, also, oh, good. yeah, because
0: towards the end of the movie, um, isn't she? Isn't she in bed with the sun? Isn't isn't a yeah, Willie? Yeah, Willie.
2: Yeah,
1: really yeah, 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 sex With Rosa. <laughs> That's why Willie's uh, mohawk goes right. up, right? Because he finally performs with somebody well, yeah he couldn't perform as well with Tobel, apparently <laughs> right right but she's still his favorite aunt so there you go
0: well, that's oh, really? a, that's another great line
1: That's it's unbelievable
0: are there any other parts of this movie that we haven't touched on yet that either of you feel like really we need to discuss
1: i didn't know if this was a thing or not but is there is there a joke around dr mo vandekamp's name other than it sounds funny
0: i mean if there is it, it's it's gone over my head because
2: okay okay oh i mean the, the names the in general that... in this movie are so wild right like elizabeth and yeah. seravian yeah. i mean just it, and lipkin it's funny because it's not like they're like outright jokes they just happen to have that little edge of um ridiculousness that is so appropriate for the movie
0: well that and again that's like another that's a cronenberg thing too
2: yeah yeah, no, absolutely Cronenberg like is the king of of weird oh, names. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> Him, John Waters uh, also loves like a good weird name. Yes, yes. With alliteration. <laughs> um anyway. Yeah,
1: and I guess I guess it is the I, I was curious how you guys felt about um Paul Bartel's character's turn towards being a uh a, some sort of like uh 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 seducer of young women you know which was not what I was expecting for him to whisk away uh, Zandra to that his, does like, kind of come trip. out of left
0: field
1: <laughs> I was not again you know I whatever the character is who the character is but when he makes that very creepy but played well cr- as creepy turn I was like fuck I did not
2: see yeah, this as a as a. it no even ends with this all. lingering
0: shot of like a very kind of like a sinister scheming look on his yeah, face too yeah
2: it sure. I mean, I the, the fact that they add in a line that shows that she just turned 17. I mean, it just. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely. I mean, I just like it's like, hey, this guy isn't just a, a blowhard asshole. He's also a total creep. And it's me, the director, Paul Bartel.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do think, though, like that moment is meant to play off of like her mm-hmm. innocence. So I think it's also funny that she's in bed with Frank later, just proving that Frank does whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> you know, like he's just right. an out of control force of
2: chaos who just is, you know,
1: just floating around in his free time, just fucking But not away.
2: a villain, right? I mean, not villainous, I should say. I mean, right. he still assaults Jacqueline Bisset and drugs her. Not exactly a good guy, but this movie isn't so judgmental about these things.
0: Also, going back to uh, the... Bar- bit with Bartell at the end. I I also feel like there may be like just some like winking going on, just because like that is just so not who Paul Bata- Bartell is that it's just right. funny. He's playing with expectations. If you know Paul, is if there you're a sense in which he's
1: the only one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's also a sense in which maybe he's the only dude on set who could get away with it and it not be <laughs> upsetting. Like, it, I mean, I guess there would be audience members who don't know who he is, but if you know he is. No part of you is like, oh, that's what he's really like. Whereas other actors, if they act like that, it almost like there's some part of you that's like, I don't know, man, that's kind of weird. You know, It's like Paul Bartell doing it. it, It's that much more ridiculous. It's that much more of a joke and not some sort of like creepy wink at the audience, which is one of the most upsetting things about the 80s, right? Like, oh, there's a weird pedophile thing in this movie. Is it played such that this person is bad or is it played like all the men in the audience go, Yeah, man, I fucking get it. Cause that was a huge theme of movies at this time was just like dudes leering at underage girls and everyone being like, Yeah, I fucking get it, man.
0: Yeah. I mean, I also I don't I don't think that it was that either.
1: No, I'm saying it it is if you know Paul Bartel, no part of you is like Ooh, this is upsetting. It's like this is one of the more ridiculous aspects well, of the movie. It's thinking of Paul Bartel seducing a hot seventeen year old girl. Well, it doesn't it's not, seem like it's his not vibe. even
0: that. It's just him being like creepy at all. <laughs> like when <laughs> yeah, reading totally this right. book, like there's just a ton, like over and over again, uh just like a ton of um like comments from people who worked with him talking about like how amazing he is as a human being, and how great Mm -hmm. it is to be on set with him, because it's just fun, and he's very funny and uh, kind, and so, yeah, it's just, it just seems like kind of like an inside joke on on set, maybe, or just on the production, that, like, his character would be, like, he, like, revealed to be, like, a turbo creep suddenly (laughs) at the end. Like, I'm not surprised that he was game to, like,
2: put himself in a
0: very unflattering light, because... He just that like, he wasn't he de- he wasn't somebody with like a huge ego, or or you know I don't know it's just it's just funny for a lot of reasons.
2: I am a little uh, I felt it was unfortunate that we didn't get more scenes between Paul Bartel and Mary warnov in this movie. Yeah, I, sure. it, it almost yeah. felt like they were intentionally keeping those characters apart. Maybe it's because at that point everyone associated uh, the two actors with each other, especially after yeah. eating Raoul. But the fact that we get so many scenes with Mary Warnow and Robert Beltran, you know, very reminiscent, uh, well, not in terms of the character dynamics, but certainly just the fact that there's those two actors from Eating Raoul, and, and you know, it'd be nice to have at least maybe even a scene with all three of them together, but I guess this is a movie that's, like, it's not that it doesn't want us to think about Eating Raoul because it's hard not to when watching it, but it is definitely trying to do a different thing.
0: Well said. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that just about wraps things up. Uh, if you don't, if I neither of you have anything else you want to touch on with this movie
2: the only other thing i had to say is that it's like this movie i think is in the way that eating raul has sort of been revisited and celebrated and now it's in the criterion mm. collection and I'm, I'm not sure that this movie is going to get venerated in the same way but it definitely you know you can get this movie on 4k it just makes it all the more bizarre to me That the movie that we're going to be talking about on our next episode is not available and i just honestly i know that it gets screened every once in a while i don't understand why what's going on that we can't see this movie
0: Yeah. yeah i i have no clue i mean i would assume it's some kind of rights thing i'll have to look into that
1: well this is the movie that i mean i you know you guys remember i was pretty over the moon about eating raul but this movie brought me back to this realization that like I'm so glad that y'all had this idea because I would have never got here on my own. I don't think that's maybe that's not true. Maybe I would have eventually. But uh, this is a real gift to be led into the, the realm of this movie. And it, one of the things about it that I think will turn out to be true is it has real rewatch value, which like might be obvious to people. I know a lot of people just pop on movies they love all the time. That's not really my vibe. I don't rewatch movies much as an adult. Uh. Um not like I did in college, and I feel like this is a movie I'll be coming back to because it just plays and plays
2: and plays, you know.
0: Any final thoughts from you, Doug?
2: I mean, I think I've already said them at this point. It's just like this is a movie that I think if you are someone who appreciates the Paul Bartel of Eating Raw, well and his earlier movies as well. In fact, in some ways, this is as much of an echo of like his early short films and the the tone of something like Private mm-hmm. Parts yeah. as yeah, it is yeah, yeah. yeah eating Raul it just feels like the culmination of where his career was supposed to be headed and again i don't want to get into and make it seem too depressing he had a he had a wonderful life full of really amazing things that he did and there's still lots of it to explore that we haven't at this point but this was a a sign of what we could have had in terms of him as a director that unfortunately we just did not get as much as we, I, I mean, he deserved and we deserve as, as audience members. And, uh, you know, it just makes us want to appreciate these movies all the more. It's, I'm just g- glad that we had an opportunity to talk about it.
0: So, so on the next episode of bar, tell me something good, uh, we'll be talking about his final feature as director, uh, the 1993, uh, comedy drama film shelf life, which takes place, uh, in a bomb shelter.
2: I can't remember if I ever mentioned this on the show, I may have before, but maybe the first time I was ever aware of Paul Bartel in any form was on an episode of what was called movie television here in Canada. It's a, it was a show that was just about sh- showing behind the scenes things of movies, and most of them were uh, movies that were being filmed in Canada at that time. It was it was a, sh- a program that was actually... Um, not to get into the mechanics of Canadian television, but Much Music, which was our version of MTV, Mm -hmm. the guy who ran that or the the organization that ran it also had a movie thing that was called movie television. And that one of the movies that they showcased in 1993 was Shelf Life, where they showed like a bunch of making of footage and they showed Paul Bartel and they interviewed people involved with it. And I have a distinct memory of it. And then I was just like, wow, this movie looks really interesting. Can't wait to see it. And then never, ever Ever seeing it again and then you know decades passing before I even realized hey it like just it'll just pop into my brain whatever happened to that movie and at that point I would have known who Paul Bartel was and would have seen Death Race 2000 and, and eating Raul and the, the fact that this movie has just you know a, a movie that's still people who see it respect it there's articles and essays mm-hmm. written about it but this movie has just disappeared off the face of the planet and maybe that's something you know like we've already said we can explore a little bit on our next episode
0: yeah we definitely will uh, I will say the movies Wikipedia page has almost nothing in the way of mm-hmm. information um, one thing it does say is that apparently the movie was rejected by both TIFF and Sundance
2: Liam
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. where can our listeners yes. find you on social media
1: oh me they don't want to do that but they could find Cinepunx C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X uh, on Instagram Facebook blue sky twitter i guess that's everything um i guess you could find me if you want to i am on blue sky i am on instagram but i think it's better just follow cinepunks just ignore me i don't matter
0: what about you doug do you also not matter or do uh, you I mean- want to plug your social media
2: I don't matter, but I still will plug that I'm on Blue Sky. You can just do a search for Doug Tilly. That's T-I-L-L-E-Y. But, of course, if you want to check out the entire archive of Bartell Me Something Good episodes, you can do that over at cinemasmorgasbord.com, which also has a variety of podcasts devoted to such niche topics as The Career, of course, of Paul Bartell, Steve Buscemi, uh, Cal Alejandro Jodorowsky, George Kennedy, all that and plenty more over at uh, cinemasmorgasbord.com or on Twitter at Cinemasmorg, S-M-O-R. Or you can do a search for Cinema Smokersport on Facebook as well.
0: And I'm not really all that active on social media anymore. You can find me on the CinePunks Discord server. so
2: Come say hi on Discord. Message Liam to get an invite to that, by the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah, or or (laughs) any of the CinePunks social media.
0: (laughs) All right, until next time, thanks for listening.